Welcome and thanks for listening. My name is Christian Buckley. I'm the founder and CEO of Collab Talk, and you're listening to the Collab Talk podcast. This episode was recorded in January 2020. It's a discussion with Mike Fitzmorris, Chief Evangelist and VP of North America for WebCon. We're discussing citizen assisted development. And we are officially underway. And Mike, it's great to talk to you. Great to be talking to you as well. So why don't, for the folks that don't know you, know your background, why don't you introduce yourself? I am Mike Fitzmorris. I'm the Vice President of North America and the Chief Evangelist for WebCon. But in truth, I am, uh, I've been around in our industry for a really, really, really long time. A long time, yes. (laughs) One of my claims to fame is that I am, and I've got the white beard and graying hair to show it, I'm actually the very first SharePoint evangelist. I didn't invent SharePoint, Jeff Teeper did that. Uh, So I'm not the father of SharePoint, I'm not the mother. That was a guy named Jonathan Kaufman who's since retired. I was, however, a wet nurse. Um, I was in the delivery room, I helped clean up the kid, and uh, I, I helped it grow up. Um, yeah, I yes. remember, I, I'm trying to remember where your office was, I, so I, because I, I joined in 2006. Yeah. Um, I met you a couple times, um, mm-hmm. you know, while, while we were employees. I, I just remember going over, trying to remember which building that was. I remember where Arpon's office was. I can't, who did he share an office with? Um, uh, for a while, he shared an office with Joel. That's right. I knew, I knew that. Joel. So it might have been before that, but anyway. Um, back in, back in that era. So remember, uh, uh, so I was part of MMS. That was the Microsoft managed services, which right. was and- came in from content management server. And, uh, I was with SharePoint. We're really getting into old school for the rest of you guys. We, we don't even really do web publishing per se, at least not public facing websites in SharePoint anymore. But for a time, the world wanted Microsoft to produce a single uh, portal product. And because the word portal was the thing that mattered at the time. And some people thought of a portal as another word for a publishing vehicle and others thought about it as an integration vehicle. We had two products that were good at each. And, uh, we, in 2020 hindsight, it was probably not the best idea to have combined them. I personally think that if Microsoft had left CMS alone, it would have become Sitecore about a year before Sitecore did. You know, Not it's that interesting. Sitecore isn't good. Sitecore is, is nice yeah. technology. There was a, a lot of interesting things going on though. So I so I started uh, so I was one of the point of contact within uh, MMS and BPOS mm-hmm. with the you know HMC, the hosted messaging and collaboration team, and they were doing some other interesting things where they were taking uh, essentially WSS and bundling other business solutions in that small business server sure. um, solution and building things where SharePoint was a component of that. And they actually was, did. They had like I, a turnkey. Trying to get people to do that, and that was one of our successes. Another one would be Visual Studio Team Services. That yes. was based around Windows SharePoint Services back in the day. There were others too. I always like to idea point was out to though, make a uh, the site is the solution. Right. 
Uh, so I, I was just going to say that just part of the, the backgrounder, then we'll move on to other topics. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I, will, I will say that uh, it, it, was, it was partly, uh, you know, because of your recommendation that I took that job with Echo Technology. So I left Microsoft in 2009, and I was interviewing with, with Little Echo Technology, which is migration mm -hmm. change management software. Yep. In the SharePoint Eventually space. acquired by Acceler. Yeah. Right. But I was also interviewing with uh, with Caligo at the time and talking yeah. with a couple others. And it was Fitz who's just like called it. I remember the phrase that you used was the diamond in the rough, uh, the opportunity around that. Well, and, they were. Uh, uh, I, I agree. Had you gone to Caligo, they were, they've been nice people too. And, you know. Sure. I still have a relationship with them. And, and, yeah. uh, and like they're a Canadian company. I'm Canadian. I, you know, I, I try to look out for the home team. That said, um, the thing I've been best known for the past decade or more is business process automation, application integration, workflow management, that kind of thing. Uh, when I left, even at Microsoft, I did a lot of work, Windows Workflow Foundation and application integration stuff in the world of SharePoint. But uh, I doubled down on it when I went to, uh, well, when I left Microsoft, I went to work for Nintex for 10 years. Um, left Nintex after their acquisition uh, back in 2018 and joined up with WebCon uh, for the past year. It's been absolutely great. These guys have impressed the heck out of me. Um, the, well, it's, the, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting space. I mean, it, 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 the look at the evolution of that. I mean, it, it's, um, you, you've got some big players that are really well known out there. Uh, mm -hmm. And and uh, so I think that especially like here in the U.S., I mean everybody knows uh, the Nintex name. Some folks are familiar with with K2, and I would say mm -hmm. you know Europe. I mean Webcon is as big or bigger of a yes. brand uh, yes. in, in in the EU. And mm -hmm. kind of talk about that. I mean your your path over to to Webcon and, and actually this is one of the reasons I I like the idea of working with them. Uh, Webcon is a ton of discipline, so rather than risk extending their uh, uh, arms too widely and spreading themselves too thin, they decided to double down and make uh, Europe a 100% success story, and they have. Um, we've just established a beachhead over here in North America, I've signed up some partners, have made some sales, we're doubling that, uh, if not more this year. Everything is, uh, we're firing on all cylinders and hitting all targets, but the, the idea this year is to become better known and better adopted over here. We don't expect that to be an overnight kind of thing, but the truth is we have an incredibly compelling story and I haven't demoed this to a single person who hasn't immediately wanted to start using it. Well, it's, uh, so just as, as far as the folks that are watching or listening in, so I've started working with with Webcon and and one of the most compelling stories is something I actually had the first article went live up on the Webcon site. I've got another blog post that's coming out this next week talking about uh, so maybe out by the time this is out, but yeah. uh, I'm talking about change management and I yeah. love that perspective. Given my background, technical project and program management, and the the fact that that was actually my approach. You know, back one of the things I liked about Echo Technology and brought that up was that it wasn't about the one-time migration moving data from one system to the other, but it was the concept that it is, the reality is that it's an, 
it's a repeated process. It's an Correct. ongoing thing that there's, your organization is going to change. Your business rules will change. The maturity the, 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 of your end users and their needs mm -hmm. uh, will, will constantly change. And you have to have, I, I, I say this and often. Is that, up, you are bringing up the later term reasons to change, which are ongoing, even during the early phases. Uh, look, you do consulting. You have done consulting. I've done consulting. When have you encountered a client that knew exactly what they wanted in excruciating detail well before they put out a request for proposals? People tend to have a need. People have a desired outcome, but the road from idea to outcome is, uh, shall we say, circuitous? Right. Well, that, that's the way that I describe that is that you know, your lens of understanding changes yeah. as, as you move forward. And that's you might find out, you might say that, hey, here's the 10 things that I need and, and those outcomes. And then you deliver on three of those and be like, yeah, what I really need is, and that shifts and it's actually mm -hmm. these, these it's just what I asked for, but not what I wanted. I, yeah, it happens yeah, yeah. all the time. But this is, you see, we don't find that annoying at WebCon. We actually find that normal, and it's up to us as platform developers to work that out and build it into the system. So WebCon, more than any other company out there, assumes that you're going to build something and change it constantly. And that could be changing the data schema, that could be changing the user uh, experience and the user interface. It absolutely means changing the process. And you'll, it's okay, none of that has to hurt. When a user or a stakeholder wants a change, the developer does not need to roll her eyes. If um, it, it turns out that assumptions turned out not to be valid, the designer does not need to sweat bullets. It's, it change is a happy thing. It's not disruptive. It's not dis certainly not destructive. And the nice thing about what we do is you can deploy an application and have people trying it out and as you gather feedback, you can make changes to it as it's being used. Uh, so this is a workflow process. It can be halfway finished, you know, 10 steps, you're on step four. You make a change to what happens between step four and five, that change takes effect immediately. Change uh, the user interface, change the forms, it, it takes effect on all the stuff in mid-flight. Think about what you had to do before. If you realized the stuff that was already in progress was wrong or at least incomplete. You had to either recall everything and bring it back, or you had to uh, just accept the fact that everything that was already in flight was going to be wrong. Well, and the other side no. of this too, I, and I think it, it fits in there is that, uh, you know, you, you, it's difficult in the IT world to go in where you you understand what your business needs are, mm -hmm. but then you have you can only go and build based on what you understand the limitations of the technology are. Of course, so, you know the the technology is dictating how you can go and solve those business problems, and sure. you're always going to have to make uh, uh, you know adjustments or or changes or even of course you know, have sure. unmet needs because of those limitations. Yep. That's absolutely correct. So yeah, we, we are the guys who love change and accept it and, and make it as painless as possible. So most everyone out there is 
either introducing some form of version control on models or maybe adding some um, application lifecycle management to what they're doing. We solved those problems years ago and, and went far beyond that. Uh, so yeah, I think WebCon actually fits the way people really build applications and really curate them afterwards. Curate's a fancy word, but it actually really fits here because it means looking at how people use it, making adjustments, making it better on a regular basis, shepherding it, improving it, helping it grow, helping it adapt. You know, one other thought too, I was I did an interview with uh, Office Apps and Services uh, um, MVP, Dan Usher, um, yeah, in sure. the DC area. We were That's talking great. about um, we were talking about how the, there's just the reality on the ground with a lot of clients, especially in the DC area and the public sector mm -hmm. that still have, you know, on-prem environments and are maintaining that. And they have, you know, we could, we could get into the detail of the real or perceived challenges of security and compliance and governance and all those kinds of things. Um, and, and he argued, I don't want to speak for him, but part of how I interpret how he answered was that he says it's not even about those issues so much anymore. It just is the hard facts of functionality, capability that they need where it's best met by these hybrid or these on-prem solutions. Well, so for organizations, again, where the, the technology is dictating, we must move towards the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and for a lot of organizations, part of factoring that in, the timing of moving to the cloud is, you know, we need to be able to, we're, we're going to have to go and completely re-architect our solutions and, and rebuild this from the ground up. It, yeah, you, you raise an excellent point. There are a number of, it's not just government agencies, there are, no, for a lot of reasons, it's not even necessarily large versus small organizations because I see cloud enthusiasm everywhere, but I also see situations everywhere where it may not be the entire company that's more true in a government agency, but it might not be the entire organization, but there are parts of the organization or certain workloads or certain use cases that for one reason or another, people either don't want to move them to the cloud or they really, for lots of reasons, can't. Yep. And to have one kind of approach for on-premises or one kind of approach for in the cloud uh, and to make everybody do one or the other, it just, it sounds like a nice idea. It's not practical. Um, so, for example, to do a, to have a different set of technology in one place versus another, you introduce a migration conundrum. Uh, so, to to rebuild a solution that used to work on premises and build it for the cloud and change everything in the process so that it looks the same but isn't the same, that doesn't make for a happy customer trying to do hybrid scenarios or even migration scenarios. And asking somebody to do everything in the cloud and relegate, really not trying to pick on anyone in particular, but to say, no, your application's going to run in the cloud, but we'll use a gateway to fetch your on-premises data. That isn't comforting to somebody who's keeping that data on-premises for any of a number of auditing and regulatory and other reasons. It means stuff is moving out of their walled garden, uh, whether they want it to or not. The nice thing about WebCon BPS is it's the same technology platform, whether you're running it on premises or running it in the cloud in a shared services scenario, or run, you can even run it in the cloud 
um, in an infrastructure as a service scenario, like running inside of your Azure tenant or your AWS environment or something like that. And therefore you get cloud functionality with cloud integration, but you're still completely in control over it. We give you all three choices and you can migrate um, from one to the other to the other with impunity. Well, it, it made me think of, we, we were talking about this on this topic uh, last month while we were in Prague. Uh, and I, it made me think of like software configuration management and the need to yeah. where you, you might have different branches of that same business process, but have four different uh, business units and four mm -hmm. different flavors of that business process and different infrastructural requirements and things and adjustments around that. Mm -hmm. And if you then have a business rule change, something that needs to change across all four of those, you're doing four independent changes in the in the typical model you're well you would if you weren't using us right that's what, that's my point yeah yeah we we have a scenario we have a construct called a business unit it's baked into the entire platform and some people use that for different countries some people use it for different uh branches of the organizational chart uh whatever it is is you can make your application behave differently depending on which business unit is using it at the time you can also restrict it to certain business units or not others but it basically you can factor in where the application's being used into the design of the application which means again you only have to change something once and it just works everywhere that's that's another very handy thing it turns out it, you you know, you bring this up, you brought up uh, something else earlier. Uh, there are so many things that high code development does right that low code development really can benefit from. Um, in some cases, you could argue that we're reinventing the wheel, although WebCon's been doing it for a while. Uh, but yeah, things like agile design and development and things like a DevOps approach and rings and so on. Everybody can benefit from this, whether or not they're do, whether or not they're doing professional code work. We try to apply those principles to a process-centric, low-code, um, for lack of a better term, paradigm. That's very cool. Well, it's it's a I, well, it's, I I talk a lot about change management because being my background in that in the project yeah. management space. I mean, so much of my life was spent kind of juggling those different, the nuances between the flavors of the system, which is essentially the same solution in four or five different locations. Of course. Having to go in and juggle between those. So, yeah. that, you know, that that's one of the messages that just, I think, really resonated with me when we started talking about that. Um, it, you know, and uh, the, you know, that other side of, 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 having your requirements being led by the, the known limitations of the, the technology. I mean, how, how does that compare? I mean, maybe you could compare WebCon versus, you know, the Microsoft's current stack and the solutions to power automate the things that they're pulling out there. What are some of the leading differences? They're, they're meant for two different things. Uh, I actually am one of the people that was happy about the name change because calling it Power Automate really accurately describes what the tool is designed to do. It is an automation tool. If you look at a Power Automate design, it starts out with uh, perform this task, now calculate this, now do this, now touch that, now connect to this, now do that. It's kind of like a program flowchart. It's like a set of instructions you would give an assistant and they're checking them off and performing them as you go along. And, handing some the output from one thing as to 
into input in another step. That's automation. It's actually an, an integration. That's a very valid use case. But a business process is something like, I have an outcome I'd like to have happen. Uh, I have a certain number of assets that are going to be involved in this. I have uh, people and roles that will be involved. I need, um, I have those assets, I have those people, I have these requirements, and I need to go through these various steps, sometimes moving back and forth, sometimes repeating something, sometimes not. Uh, the logic is the star of the show, and the payload is the star of the show. It's very stateful. It's not stateless. It, uh, it has a life cycle, and that life cycle could be very long running. It could be short, but it could be very long. Um, it's like working on a case if you're a physician or a detective or something like that, uh, and it can take you in lots of different directions. Business process software certainly uses animation to accomplish certain tasks and certain steps, but it's operating at an entirely higher level. You could do business process automation with a combination of Power Automate and Power Apps and a bunch of, but you would wind up writing a lot of extra uh, code yourself or non-code assets. And the real business process management would be taking place inside your head not in a uh, platform designed for the purpose. It might exist in documents and you'd create a lot of automation steps to implement pieces of it. Webcon and lots of, uh, and look, we're not the only people out there in business process land. Lots of companies are doing this. Um, but the thing that differentiates us is we're operating at a different level and we're tackling a different problem. We use automation as part of it. That actually means uh, that you could combine WebCon and Power Automate to accomplish a whole bunch of things. Some people have even done uh, articles and webinars on that topic. Yes, yeah, spe speaking of, kind of what, what are your active topics? What are you presenting on? Like, what are you talking about when you come for, uh, for Microsoft 365 Friday here in Utah in two weeks? Actually, the thing I just uh, was telling you about, the, the identifying different kinds of automation scenarios and uh, choosing which kinds of tools or, or which type of tools. I'm not making specific tool recommendations, but to say, if you're doing application integration, look at these kinds of tools. If you're doing uh, data harvesting, look at these kinds of tools. Uh, if you're doing content collaboration, look at the following set of uh, tools and take this kind of approaches and watch out for these, um, uh, these bear traps and so on. I talk about that and I also talk about the difference between automation and business process management. Uh, so I'll be talking about that. Um, I, I also often talk about uh, designing applications so that they can be more easily changed. The, both this, uh, this particular topic is designed not to have a single demo or uh, a single screenshot. This is advice you can use no matter which tools you use, but basically there are ways you can design your approach to uh, uh, solving a workflow problem that makes it really easy to change it later and has a greater chance of success. And I've delivered that talk in different forms over the years. No matter who I'm working for, competitors have been in the room and found themselves nodding the entire time. This is something everyone likes. I talk about uh, stage and state machine type uh, workflow design. This is a little bit geeky, but it turns out to have incredibly powerful benefits for people. Turns out that uh, 
WebCon based their entire platform on that. I didn't know that at the time I started being an advocate for state machine thinking, but that was nice. Yeah. Um, and I talk about citizen development a lot. And um, in fact, I'm getting ready to debut a session uh, in a few months about uh, rethinking uh, what we wanted citizen development to accomplish versus what is really happening out there. Yeah, that's I'm actually. It. I'm not celebrating it. I'm picking yeah. it apart and seeing where it works and where it doesn't. Well, that, so I was going to kind of ask you uh, along those lines of whether you see that is your focus in the your in WebCon's focus more mm -hmm. on that you know citizen developer slash power user type, or is it on the typical just business user? It's sort of somewhere in between. Uh, WebCon's actually kind of fond of the notion of citizen assisted development. So. Mm -hmm. In traditional development, you sort of start requirements by interviewing uh, your stakeholders, your citizens, and then you take all of that and go work on it somewhere else. And then you bring it back and hope everything is nice and happy, right? Uh, in citizen development, it's, well, we have an application backlog and we have developers that don't understand citizens, so let's just let the citizens do all the work for themselves and hope that it works out nicely. Turns out there are a number of caveats with that. So we have a disconnect between what people want and what developers build. That's one problem to solve. We also have an application backlog. Not enough of these guys to meet the demand that these guys. Let's a, a lot of the push for self-service was around that exact thing. It's the, right. you know, let's, let's give you a lot of these different options is it, it let's, you know, let's focus on creating those things which serve multiple constituencies, multiple yeah. groups of, of users, put that out there. But then at some level, then it's for the end users to go and say, well, I'm 90% there with the solution that my IT team built uh, and I'm going to tweak it and adjust to get what I need for my specific requirements. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So. Uh, on the far end of the spectrum, you could just say, let these guys do all the work for themselves. And there are some companies out there that advocate that approach. And you could argue that the power platform people, uh, well, their marketing people paint that picture rather nicely. I would argue that the people actually delivering the product uh, don't make those claims at the exact same time. So that's marketing kind of getting ahead of itself. Because in reality, uh, there are a couple of scenarios. When it doesn't work, citizen development creates chaos and a mess. It's, that it's the shadow IT. That's, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. If I can't figure out how to do it and somebody puts a nice, tells a nice story about this other third party product that seems to do better than what's available there and I can yeah. go purchase that and suddenly have these unsupported. Stick a pin in that shadow IT idea because it's really important. I'll come back to it in a second. Okay. But when citizen development works, uh, it works by turning citizens into developers. Some of the biggest success stories for Power Apps, they've got like their team of 10 heroes or something like that. They tended to have their jobs change and now they're in the business of building power. They're developers now. They're low right. code developers, but they're developers. They stopped being citizens. And they might still remember what it's like to be a citizen and that's a good thing. Uh, but one of two things happens. Either you rise to the occasion, you become a non-traditional developer, or you stay a citizen and created a mess. 
we saw that happening time after time after time and wanted to do something about it. By the way, the other reason why uh, this is so attractive to have the citizens do all the work for themselves is because they don't have to communicate this idea with the developer over here and have so much stuff get lost in translation. The problem is you need to do that anyway, because if I am over here building an application for myself and I'm not the only one using it, at some point I'm going to go on vacation or I'm going to leave or I'll get promoted or transferred or, or I just won't have time at the moment and someone else is going to need to work on this. And if I didn't explain it well or document it well or make it change worthy, no one over here is going to have a good time. So that work you had to do, uh, you still had to do it. Now, what could happen? Now, let's uh, unpin that thing about uh, shadow IT. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about satellite IT or satellite development, where you do have people in the trenches, but you accept the fact that they're not regular citizens. They're, uh, they have development in IT and, and some dev skills. Let's call them uh, business analysts. Some people do that, but uh, some people would call them operations people, like a sales organization almost invariably when it hits a certain size dedicates one person to sales ops and they manage Salesforce or Microsoft Dynamics CRM or something like that. And they do a lot of low code development with it, sometimes actual code. Uh, that's actually a wonderful model. In fact, I would argue that after a while, citizens get tired of being asked to develop things for themselves and they punt things to that operations person or that analyst anyway. And so what becomes important there, they're in the trenches, they're satellite IT. They, they, they have a friendly relationship with central IT. So mm -hmm. it's not like they don't get it and it's not like they don't have skills, but they also get these guys better. Um, used to be an analyst's job was to translate user requirements into things geeks could understand. I would say that letting the analyst do the building as opposed to the citizens has a much greater chance of success. Mm -hmm. And so having citizens assist in the development process, what we at WebCon called citizen-assisted development, that is something worth taking a look at. Uh, and so making it easily explainable as to what the, uh, the uh, analyst or operations person or satellite developer is doing, making it easy to collect feedback and have people participate in the process without actually having to do that work. Every time we've seen someone do that, it's worked swimmingly without exception. And in truth, everybody I've seen attempt citizen development in the classic sense where you, everybody has the option to do it for themselves, it winds up evolving into this anyway. Well, it's, it, you know, I, so I think five, six, seven years ago when we really started talking about kind of what's mm -hmm. the future role of the IT pro. Yes. And I think one of the messages that I promoted, uh, in fact, the first uh, Ignite conference that was in Chicago. Uh, so I had a, a session where I actually went and did research on, uh, you know, so I, would, I, I pushed into the partner and the MVP community to get feedback of what they thought of what would happen with that role. And mm -hmm. one of the loudest messages that came out of that was that, well, it's these people that are uh, really, uh, uh, perfectly placed to move into that more business analyst type function with their technical skill set to mm -hmm. play this exact role. Right. 
Yeah. And I, I, so I completely agree with it. It's if your, if your job had been, you know, managing the, the, the servers and managing these, these giant business platforms and applications, things like, like SharePoint. And it's not just like, Hey, I'm out of a job now that we use office 365. You know, we, we know that that's never been true um, that the roles evolved, but this is a great example of, what can happen, what that role can evolve into. Yeah, plus it actually fits the way organizations actually behave rather than uh, a vision some independent software vendor had for the way organizations could behave. Right. Well, that's, I, I, I kind of put that in that category of, uh, of again, like you know, the technology-driven decisions versus sure. the culture of the organization and the capabilities of the organization. I mean, it may be that for some organizations where, depending on what those frontline workers are are doing and their tasks, that they just they don't have the time that you know the 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 or the or the skills, tech capability to even step up into that mm-hmm. you know expanded role and play that role. Um, and, and you might hire somebody specifically for that, that function mm-hmm. or pull somebody from it down to the organization. Um, but it's, uh, I, but I, I, I agree with that. It's when you, in my personal experience is that when you make everything self-serve, it automatically is what happens over time is that people naturally gravitate into those roles and end up playing that, you know, that, that again, that assisted uh, IT role. Yeah. As an advocate of citizen development as an idea in general, I mean, I've been refining my opinion about this over the last year or two. Uh, but one of the things that many people, including me, um, recommended was it's all about the tools. Nailing the tools correctly is so important. Give citizen developers tools they can use where they don't hurt themselves, where they've deliberately got limits, and the things they will build don't need to be carefully scrutinized and managed. That in theory works well, and that's a technology-driven approach. In truth, again, looking at the way people actually behave, uh, no, they want, if they decide that they really want to push the, if they want to use it, they find themselves spending all of their time trying to hack their way beyond the limitations of the tool and creating more chaos. Yeah. And this is a, yeah. a I think this is a, you know, it's a common problem within the DevOps space. In, you of know, course. In large, we, it's funny that I, I brought up SCM. We talked about, you know, DevOps. It's like the yeah. same problems. In fact, a lot of the issues that we've experienced within our community in the SharePoint world, you know, I was in the, uh, so back in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, and I wrote books for Rational Software and IBM Rational, and Mm -hmm. it was largely in that DevOps space. Mm -hmm. Of course, we didn't call it DevOps as a category back then, but it's all the same, same problems, same issues. We just different, different labels now in in this community, but. We're living the same same things over again. You know, it's actually. I, so I had a thought earlier too. Says so you know the, the the sales cycle with enterprise collaboration with any platform with technology. Sure. There's the cycle of the uh, centralized versus decentralized. Of course. Um, this is kind of a separate thought. It's like, but I I've been thinking that that like we seem to be in this 
decentralized push kind of like the big bang theory of, of it and you know will it all come crashing back in and will be back to that path of where there will be some provider out there microsoft or some other oem that will try to pull everything together and be one platform solution that'll serve all needs and then see it explode out there again is that inevitable or have we learned? The attempt is inevitable. The success is not. And I'm not even sure someone should be cheering for success for, for all of that. As much as there are definite patterns and similarities between the way eight different organizations handle customer relationship management, there's enough differences between them that, yeah, we need to, uh, there's going to be work done of a decentralized nature. What I see is a constant balancing act between trying to distribute all the work out into the trenches and trying to consolidate some things for scale and for uh, reliability. You could argue that the, look, this has happened before, it will happen again. We had everything happen in mainframes and then we put everything in personal computers and then we created networks and it became client server and so on, uh, which was a balance between the two. What you see now is trying to re-centralize everything up in common cloud services. And yeah, it works to some extent, but um, the problem is if people need a lot of different things and no one application, whether it's software as a service or anything, uh, can do it. So yeah, I'd love to, I, I like the idea of resources being consolidated and centralized in various cloud data centers, but the work is still going to be heavily distributed and a lot of edge stuff is going to be distributed. If everything worked from a centralized system, we'd all be living our lives out of SAP. And what a life that would be. Uh, SAP is <laughs> really good at what they claim to be good at. Or, or, but yeah, I, but I like that, but that idea though. It's an excellent piece of software, but, but, I, but uh, I wouldn't right, want to do but, everything. But I remember again living through this experience where uh, where you have increasingly all the data is residing essentially the same location. Is if you the more and more that you try to consolidate, look, there's there's arguments both directions. But the more you try to consolidate, it makes me think of single point of failure. One system goes down, it shuts down everything. But the reality is that our data doesn't all sit in one place. It's spread no. out in however you define you know data. The applications yeah, this has to service the needs of the real world. And in some cases, I need data to be persisted, even if it's in the cloud, in Canada, in Germany, in places that have data sovereignty uh, laws. I need to comply with different sets of laws and rules and generally accepted practices and so on. I'm not going to be able to do everything from one place. And, and to their credit, Microsoft and Amazon and Google are not saying that. They have data centers all over the world. And sure. yeah, to some extent, those data centers adapt to local conditions, to some extent. Uh, but I don't see a return to everybody doing everything in their local data center, but I also don't see everything happening in a common set of services up in the cloud. Among other things, Different people have legitimately different ways of accomplishing goals. You might decide that you want to do everything with WebCon BPS. You might decide you want to do everything with um, K2. We've mentioned them before. We might want to do everything with the Power Platform and, along with an, a lot of extra work on our part. 
um, five different organizations will come to five different conclusions. We need to have room for all of them. And you're not going to have room for all of them in one place from one vendor. Right. Well, something that you, you mentioned, you were you talking about the sessions that you do, and maybe as kind of a you know, parting thoughts here, but where you're giving advice to uh, organizations and to end users that are um, like setting up, establishing the right practices. I, I think immediately of a, of a uh, you know, like a, a community of, of experts within an organization to share best practices on how we should even be approaching developing our and documenting and building out our business process solutions, whatever that is, sure. it could be across different fields. So what are some of those best practices? People love lists, Mike, as you know, sure. you want to know what are the five things I need to be doing to prepare for successful ongoing success? Okay. Uh, sure. I, I, I can give you the easiest one. Thing number one is if it's a business process or even an automation solution, the process comes first. Most people start with the data. Uh, they model it independently of what they're going to do with it. And then they have to figure out to write some reactive logic for it. That's crazy. Well, they build a form first without knowing what the form is supposed to be used for. That's crazy. Start with your process. Your process will then tell you what data you need. And then the process and the data will tell you what you're supposed to do with your forms. So do it in the right order. That's a piece of advice from me. Second big thing, um, most of the time when I see people attempt to build workflow solutions, whether it's simple automation or whether it's a full-blown business process, there is the branching logic. In other words, do this, then do that, then depending on the following thing, go this way, go that way, and so on. Uh, and then there are the individual steps being performed, like go get this information out of your ERP system and then update someone's calendar over here and then uh, check this um, uh, piece of equipment and record uh, what the current levels are, these kinds of things. Most people I see try to deal with that will focus on those steps first rather than the overall logic. In other words, okay, how am I going to do some Internet of Things thing to read that meter automatically so people don't have to do it? Or why don't I, uh, or how can I make a direct, which method calls do I need to make to which API and SAP to get at uh, our, our HR module? Or like, uh, should I be using the Graph API or the Exchange Web Services API in order to talk to somebody's calendar? Don't start with that. You should start with the overall branching logic because if you make sure that the process is followed every time with some sort of automated system, even if the steps are manual, no one's going to forget to do a step anymore. And you're going to be able to figure out if you're doing something inefficiently or wrong. In other words, if you focus on the process first and the automation second after you get the process right, you're going to have a much better time. You'll build a better solution. You can start using it right away, even before it's completely finished. Uh, and, and you will just get better results. So instead of tackling at the automation level, tackle it at the process level, fill in the automation after the fact. I, th I think it's a, there's a, 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 that's a great point. Uh, I think that it's something that when I would go in and build out PMOs and work with 
project managers and business analysts and help them kind of build out centers excellence is that same idea. In fact, Dan Holm and I at uh, ESPC in Copenhagen the first time, so a few years mm -hmm. back, we did a keynote where we talked about that. We said, look, the uh, technology doesn't matter. We were talking about SharePoint. SharePoint doesn't matter. The mm -hmm. business matters. Where you go in and first define what the business needs are, then, then you look at it and say, okay, this is what the business requires. Where's the data for those processes? And then the technology to be able to access the right data and meet those, those needs. Another benefit that comes out of it, doing it that way, is then you also then, as you go through that refining process of building that out, determine, hey, there's inefficiencies in, in the process. You might not otherwise see. If you, if you're, if you jump to the technology first or the limitations right. for the data well, sets. Let's come back to that in a second. The, the yeah. thing I wanted to, to say is if you automate the logic, even if you don't have the steps automated yet, if you automate the logic, you effectively have a, a living checklist. The aviation industry works off of checklists with manual steps. Surgical theaters now, based on a lot of laws that have been passed over the past decade or two, now make sure that before any surgery is performed, you go through an elaborate checklist. Surgeons, by the way, hate this, but um, it, it turns out to save lives. It's really cut down on a lot of, shall we say, surgical mishaps. Uh, checklists are awesome. Checklists actually give you half of your business benefits right there before you automate a single step. So yeah, that would be piece number two. And, and the third piece, uh, I don't want to do this to, uh, if we do all five, it's going to take a while. Yeah. I'll end with three. Sure. The third thing that you should keep in mind, and this one, you don't have to do this, uh, but you should do it for selfish reasons. And this is what you were just uh, mentioning that I, I asked to pause on. Let's come back to it right now, which is uh, if you don't examine what you're doing now and measure it right now, after you model it, automate it, make it better, implement it. You need to be able to prove that you had an impact. And there's no better way to prove it than to measure the old way versus the new way. Otherwise, if you did this at the beginning of the year and you come up for a review at the end of the year, people are gonna wonder, what have you done for me lately? And by the way, if you created a solution that made a problem go away, people tend to forget about the problem after the fact. Um, unless you're constantly doing something new and novel, people don't remember unless you have metrics to remind them of the difference you made. I, I believe that uh, Janet Jackson was, uh, was talking about IT when she said, what have you done for me lately? Exactly. Pretty, I'm pretty sure that was it. Dude, I read something last week about somebody thinking that Y2K was a hoax. <laughs> okay. 20 years later and, and so it, it, but again people are talking about it and, and there's also why uh 2020 now because a lot of people just solved the y2k problem by delaying it 20 years so there have been some software systems breaking lately and that's probably what got the, the topic raised again i'll say that if y2k was a hoax there were a lot of COBOL programmers that made a fortune off of that hoax, of so hoax. That. and it's not y2k was an example of people discovering a problem probably to uh, probably later than we than they should have but realizing that a problem existed and a widespread effort was taken to fix it and in all but a couple of cases that were then fixed quickly it worked
Right. Um, but because there was no disaster, people thought it was a hoax. You don't want that to happen to you. You want to be able to prove that the work you did made a huge difference. So measure it before and measure it after. Your application is still going to work, but you deserve credit for it. That is a great place to, to end on it. And, and I know we can, we can talk for an hour just about uh, measurement and measuring success, defining that you know, upfront. Absolutely. There's strategies around that as well. And uh, as someone who is uh, a couple places that I worked, I, I worked intentionally worked myself out of a job solving the, the, <laughs> the problems and, and, uh, and then coming to the end of that and realizing, well, there, there wasn't a place for me going forward. I, I came, I did what I was supposed to go and do, and it was just time to then move, which is perfectly all right. I, I'm not an ongoing operations kind of guy, so it, uh, it was okay. But Well, Mike, great, great discussion. I think those are some helpful, uh, helpful hints for an organization that is uh, starting up and thinking about what is the best way to set ourselves up for long-term success and and identifying and solving these kinds of business, you know, problems that are meeting our business needs. People want to find out more about you, get in touch with you. What are the best ways to reach you? Mike Fitz at webcon.com. If you want to email me directly, uh, I'm on Twitter at Mike Fitz, M-I-K-E-F-I-T-Z and, uh, uh, LinkedIn, um, linkedin.com slash in slash Mike Fitzmorris spelled out. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Mike. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Collab Talk podcast. You can find us online at collabtalk.com, as well as on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.